Amen. So good to be here with you. Um, uh, we've got lots of people visiting Mosaic at the moment, so if I've not said hello yet, uh, just uh, with these guys, want to say it's so good that you're here. If you've got a Bible, why don't you open it up? We're going to go to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew. Um, we are looking at Matthew chapter 5. Last week, we started a new preaching series called The Kingdom, uh, based in the Sermon on the Mount, and we looked last week at the Beatitudes, uh, and the way Jesus blesses those that are poor in spirit, people who acknowledge their need for God. We looked at um, Jesus blessing those who mourn over their sin and enjoy the comfort and forgiveness that only God can bring them. And we saw that Jesus blesses the meek, those who confidently yet humbly know who they are in Jesus. And for those people, they will receive a reward from God, uh, not just in this life, but the life to come. And so Jesus cast this incredible vision of the people that God blesses, but also the people he wants uh, his people to be like. And in the next verse, uh, or couple of verses, he asks the question, what role do these sorts of people have in society? People that live the Beatitudes, how do they function in the world? You see, in John 17, Jesus is very clear that he specifically prays for his disciples not to be taken out of the world. And how we wish sometimes he said the opposite to that, because sometimes it's quite tempting uh, to withdraw and get comfortable and settling, settle into something that's just nice and it's about your stuff, not anyone else's stuff. However, Jesus wants us, the church, to mix and mingle with people who do not share our beliefs. And so the question is, how do we do that in a way that both honors Jesus and also makes a difference? And the answer is Matthew 5, verse 13. Should we read this verse together, actually, out loud? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So this one verse contains Jesus' genius answer to how we should join God's mission to change the world using a really everyday kitchen object, salt. Try to think about when you last interacted with salt. Why don't you just turn to your neighbor and tell them when that was? Brilliant, good job. Some of you actually little, made little grinding motions as you were describing your last use. So interestingly, salt, we use it all the time. We use it in the world to make leather, pottery, soap, detergents, rubber, clothes, paper, cleaning products, glass, plastics, uh, pharmaceuticals. It sits unnoticed in hundreds of millions of cafes and restaurant tables around the world. And unlike pepper, which would seem similar on first glance, salt is actually essential for our health. We spread it across our roads when it snows. More than half the chemical products involve salt at some stage. 
And that's without mentioning the millions and millions and millions of tons of it that sits in our oceans that cover 70% of the surface of the planet. Salt is everywhere. And its commonality means Jesus has picked an illustration here that works in every culture and every time when he says, you are the salt of the earth. But what does he actually mean? It's simply, I think, for the modern person, just not something that we put together with how we should live our lives. And if you really think about it, the way salt has been used in society over the centuries, that salting the earth was actually something you would do to destroy the land rather than make it flourish. When an invading army would come in, they would throw salt everywhere in order to destroy the soils and destroy the crops rather than bless them. And technically, for all you chemists out there, and Google has been very helpful this week, sodium chloride doesn't ever lose its flavor. So why would Jesus say it can? So that's my job this morning, is try and explain, using four different properties of salt, what Jesus means for us to live as believers, as Christians in the world. I think you'll be familiar with the first two, and I think the last two will be a surprise. So number one, what does salt do? Salt stops the rot. Turn to your neighbor and say, stop the rot. This is probably the use that we're most familiar with. Salt stops meat and fish from decaying. In hot climates, it was absolutely essential to feed the masses. It's one of the main reasons. In ancient times, salt was actually really valuable. Roman soldiers were sometimes paid with salt, which, as an aside, is the, ori the origin of the word salary. It comes from the word salt. And uh, when I was very privileged to visit Cape Town in uh, South Africa a few years ago, they tried to feed me a South African delicacy called biltong. Has anyone tried biltong? Yeah, a lot of you try biltong. Some of you even like it. But it's a 400-year-old practice of taking strips of meat and preserving it in salt. It keeps it tasty. It keeps it nutritious. And apparently, it lasts indefinitely. And I would say it tastes like it lasts indefinitely as well. So how on earth do we stop the rot if we are the salt of the earth? Well, the church is meant to be working in the places of the world where the decay seems most apparent. And of course, through common grace, there are some brilliant institutions and companies and charities and people who curb their selfish tendencies and do good in our communities. Uh, Pip and I, my wife and I, just watched uh, Alan Bates versus the post office, or Mr. Bates versus the post office, and you just saw how this man for years, for decades, pours his life out se seeking justice for post office um, sub, sub, what are they called? Sub-postmasters. But God intends for his church to be the most powerful of all restraints and preventative measures in society. And so it does us good to think of our home or think of our community or think of our workplaces and imagine us being the people that God wants to use to stop the rot. 
I think it means that we speak hope and bring hope in all areas of society, in education, in health, in government, in the service industry, in the charitable sector, you name it. We are meant as Christians to restrain evil and encourage goodness. As consumers, as workers, as producers, we strive for freedom and dignity, civil rights for minorities, the abolition of social racial discrimination. It's the sort of thing, I can remember speaking to someone at Mosaic when they left their marketing company, on their exit interview, their boss said to them, I don't know what we're going to do without you. We've lost our moral compass. And that is what it is to be sought in the workplace. Just think of the work that we do here with our debt center, helping people that are in debt get back on their feet and find life free from the crippling debt that they have. Think of the work that we do in Zambia via, um, via the Seaman family, the neonatal ward that's just been built for premature children. Last year, uh, Leah and her team in Zambia saw over a thousand children that were born prematurely. That is the same number as Bradford General Infirmary served last year. And Leah's working from this sort of little room that's fortunately just been expanded. You know, when we've planted Mosaic Church, uh, which is going back 19 years or so, uh, we visited a church to try and get some ideas of what sort of church we should build. And we visited the Church of the Saviour in Washington, D.C., and they were the original mission group church. So we do mission groups. We stole it completely from them. And when they first planted their church, um, they realized that if they were going to make a difference in their neighborhood, um, they prayed and looked around and realized there was an orphanage right in their neighborhood. And so the small church of under 100 people between them adopted every child in the orphanage. And so for them as a new church, that was the impact that they wanted to have on their community. And it struck me as distinct as tangy, as salty. It's stopping the rot in a, in a thousand different ways, often very hidden acts of generosity and service that I'm sure many of you demonstrate at work and at home. You see, we're to be, as, as far as the grace of God allows, the best workers, the ones who are reliable, the ones that have integrity, the ones that are hardworking, that are humble yet generous. And obviously we're not to kill ourselves doing that, but there is a sense in which as we build our lives on Christ, the beatitude should overflow in our character and our conduct and slowly make a difference. Now the challenge of this is if you leave salt just one centimeter away, from food, it is completely useless and does nothing. And so it, it's pertinent for us to ask the question, where are you being rubbed into? Like, where is God asking you to be salty? And what does stop stopping the rot look like for you? For me, in my, in my little way of trying to help, I am uh, a litter picker. So for me and Walter, we're on the same team. So every now and then, I just go out with my purple bag and my little uh, litter picker, 
and just work my way around uh, where we live. And it's very small, but for me personally, it's a very powerful metaphor. I, I pray as I go and get to prayer walk, and that whole idea of picking up the litter is helpful for me as I pray for myself. God, would you cleanse me? Would you sort out my mess? But it's also motivating to pray for my neighborhood. When you litter pick, it's like an excuse to chat to anyone and everyone. I get to meet people and know people. And a clean neighborhood encourages pride and ownership. It's a very small thing, but I know it has a bigger impact more than I can see. It, even as we announce the Make January Better thing that we're doing. As we think about who is there around us that we can bless, it's often those very little hidden acts of service that go uh, make a disproportionate difference in people's lives. So I just wonder whether you just turn to your neighbor and just perhaps just let them know, where are you stopping the rot? Where would you like to stop the rot? What do you think stopping the rot looks like for you? It doesn't have to be profound. It can be very small and simple. I'm just trying to get you to engage with this subject. So if you're comfortable, I just turn to the person next to you and say, this is what I'd like to do, or this is what I think I am doing. Give it a go. It'll be all right. Some of you are looking very worried. It's, it's going to be okay. Okay, well done, everyone. It wasn't meant to be a moment for you to get to brag about all the amazing things you do. Uh, and, and maybe, just maybe, if you're sat there thinking, I don't know if I've got much to say, that this is like a gentle prod to think about your life. Where can you stop the rot? Secondly, it brings out the flavor. In the hands of a great cook, the right amount of salt transforms an ordinary meal. Imagine your delicious McDonald's fries, and surely McDonald's makes the best fries. Imagine them without the salt. It'd just be like eating cardboard. It wouldn't be the real deal. Salt brings out the flavor. I feel like I've got no one on board with me with McDonald's <laughs> chips. And this is probably the use of salt that most of us think about because it's one of the five that we engage with daily. And it's a powerful illustration for how Christians are meant to serve the world. We're meant to spread ourselves throughout the world and enhance it. We're meant to add the flavor, the God flavor, to other things that would be bland without him. We're meant to draw out the blessing of whatever is good and provide a contrast by being distinct and different. And so what does it mean to do this, to bring out the flavor? Well, I think the Apostle Paul is hinting at it when he says this in Colossians 4, verse 6. He says that our speech is to be seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We're not just to blend in, but we're to lovingly and gently and wisely speak up and speak out. We're to, at some point in our friendships, talk about Jesus, our faith, the hope that we have, what God wants to do in people's lives, alongside the acts of service that help stop the rot. 
Just doing good and never explaining why you do good makes you look good and not the God that we serve. Bringing out the flavor means being a bit different. And obviously, no one wants to be different. And just so you know, Jesus isn't saying be, be odd, be strange, be weird, be quirky. But he's talking about being morally and spiritually different. Noticeably marching to a different tune. We follow God, not the world. Jesus didn't say you are the sugar of the world. He says you're the salt we have a life-changing message and a life-changing person to introduce to the world. It's meant to have an impact. It's meant to, in one sense, be challenging to think about sharing Jesus. Interestingly, the whole context for Jesus saying you are the salt of the earth comes in the two verses before it. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Could we have the next slide? Blessed are you, Jesus says, when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you and then he goes on to say you are the salt of the earth jesus understood that prioritizing him would mean that some of us are insulted persecuted falsely accused and if we never ever experience any of those things then it might be that we're choosing to refrain from adding the much-needed flavor that we're meant to bring. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, if there's no difficulty in our lives, if there's no challenge for what we believe, then does that reflect on perhaps our reticence to really live out our faith amongst our friends and the people that know us best? Let's bring our flavor. Let's bring our flavor to our friends' lives by seasoning our conversations and actions with salt. Everyone doing okay? Right. Number three, salt destroys the bad. So this one doesn't sound so pleasant, does it? But there are more scriptural references to salt being used in judgment or destruction than any other purpose. So when Lot's wife disobediently turns to look back at the city of Sodom, she's turned into a pillar of salt in Genesis 19. Moses warns the Israelites that if they break God's covenant, their land will be burned with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout in Deuteronomy 29. When Gideon's son Abimelech tries to set himself up as the king of Israel, the men of Sechem rebel against him and he responds by raising the city and sowing it with salt in Judges 9. And Jesus himself has the fiercest judgment paragraphs in the Gospels in Mark 9 where he says everyone will be salted with fire. Salt in the near ancient east was used as to express judgment upon evil. And so, uh, in one sense, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have the same purpose in the world. God scatters salty Christians into the world as a way of judging evil, destroying wickedness, preventing lust or greed or murder or injustice taking root. It's strong language. 
but the very existence of the church preaching and living out the gospel proclaims judgment against the enemies of God and serves what Paul calls a clear sign to them of their destruction in Philippians 1. So what, what does that mean? What on earth does that mean? Well, I think it means that in a humble way, we are meant to be working for the destruction of all that corrupts and kills and maims and hurts, especially the most vulnerable in society. It means simple things that um, that the coffee roasters that are associated with Mosaic, we've got a few, they choose to get their coffee by ethical means. It means our sister church up in Bedlington, and they now have set up four homes for abused women and children. They are drawing a line in the sand for women that need to escape abusive homes and providing a safe context for them to bring up their kids. It means things like praying and campaigning for the government to end society's collective evils, racism, economic and cultural exploitation, class division, denial of human rights, defending unborn children, fair treatment of migrants and refugees, just to name a few. And what is challenging about talking about this is that frequently the church has failed to live this way and has been an accelerator of worldly evil, not a break. But Jesus knew that would happen. And that's why almost all words, all Jesus' words of judgment were directed to the people of God first, rather than an unbelieving world. So even talking about this means that we need to say to God, do you need to sort me first, as well as use me to sort the earth? We may need to look at ourselves and how we live first before we sort those who don't believe as we do. And fourthly and lastly, it fertilizes the ground. It seems the opposite of what we've just said, but ancient civilizations used salt also in very small quantities as fertilizers for the soil. And depending on the conditions, it could help the earth retain water, it could make fields easier to plow, it could release minerals for various plants, it kills weeds, protects crops from disease, stimulates growth, uh, helps increase yields. So what does he mean that we as Jesus' disciples are fertilizers? Well, I think it means this. We are meant to be in the places where conditions are challenging and life is hard. We've been sent to enrich the soil, to kill the weeds, to protect against disease. And as we scatter, life is meant to spring up in unexpected places. Barren lands suddenly become fruitful. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means for us as the church that we live and serve in places that need enriching. That we're to not just think about where we choose to live in terms of brilliant schools for our kids, rising house prices and good investments, or low crime rates so we feel safe. But we're meant to be prepared to live and work wherever God sends us, 
including some of the bits of the city which need the most help. It means that we pray as a church for the parts of the city that need spiritual fertilizing. It means as a church we're thinking, God, where can we set up our next mission group? Like what bit of Leeds needs the presence of a little community of believers? It means that we're meant to be, as a big church, saying, where can we start new churches? Where can we plant a church? Leeds is a million people. It could do with loads more church plants that are just often so effective at reaching their communities. We need to think about bits of the city that are known for their deprivation. Places like Hare Hills and Bermontofs and Oakwood, Chapeltown, Armley, even as far out as Otley. And we need leaders to emerge that have just got that in their hearts. That I'm living to a different sort of beat. I'm not just doing what everyone else is doing in buying houses and settling down. But I've got a vision to see bits of the city changed and impacted because Christians are there. And the whole idea of us being salt, needing to be scattered over the ground, is in order to see what Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Super challenging stuff, isn't it? So I'd really like, as I draw things to a close, to finish on a high. But Jesus finishes with a warning. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So the effectiveness of the salt is conditional. It's got to stay salty. In those days when Jesus was speaking, what they called salt would have been sort of a white powder, perhaps even from the Dead Sea, which obviously contains sodium chloride, it contains salt, but it would have contained lots of other stuff as well. And because they had no, uh, I, I guess, uh, good refineries in those times, of the dust, the sodium chloride was probably the most soluble and therefore in the dust the most easily washed out. And so if this white powder that you called salt got damp in any way, the residue still looked like salt, it was still called salt, but it didn't taste like salt or act like salt, it was just effectively road dust. And so what Jesus is trying to say lovingly to his disciples, that if you decide to tone down your distinctive tanginess, if you just want to be normal, then we are good for nothing, we're like road dust. We have a salty message. Our message is simply, the way you're going is wrong. Turn around and follow the God that loves you. And we are to live in a salty way. Jesus wants us to stop the rot, to bring out the flavor, to destroy the bad and fertilize the ground. And so how on earth do we confidently live like this? Because I know even as I'm preaching this message, I can feel the challenge, the weight of it. Well, at the cross, Jesus makes a way for us to live 
as salty Christians. If you like, the warning that hovers over this text in Matthew, Matthew 5.13 is placed on Jesus' shoulders when he dies. He's thrown out and discarded like unsalty salt, so you don't have to be. He stops the rot by dying for the ungodly and undeserving and offering new life. He brings out the flavor by empowering all his disciples with the Spirit. He destroys our greatest enemies, sin and death. And he takes the broken and raises new life out of the ground by his resurrection power. You see, even though Jesus warns us, there is comfort and there is empowerment through all that he achieves for us. There is grace and strength to be the sort he calls us to be. And you know, when we realize that as disciples, it means our posture is always humble because we realize that we need to be safe first. But at the same time, I, I guess I want to speak confidence to all of you that you are big slabs of walking, talking salt that is meant to be let loose in the world to do the work of God that he's called you to do. Will you take up that incredible challenge to be the salt of the earth? I pray that you do. Do you understand with me? Should we just bow our heads for a moment? Heavenly Father, thank you for this strong encouragement this morning to be the salt of the earth and to not lose our saltiness. God, we just confess that we we do find living as salty disciples particularly challenging. Uh, we we find it we just often want to blend in. We want we don't want to be different. But we're so grateful we have a great God to share and a life-giving message to give. Thank you so much for all the incredible work behind the scenes, the thousands of acts of hidden service that's stopping the rots and making a difference. And we pray, God, that you would empower us to be your spirit, to by your spirit, to be those that you use to impact this world for your glory. We look to you, King Jesus, for our help and our strength. We say, Holy Spirit, come fill us afresh this morning. Lift our heads, encourage our hearts, empower us to be these sorts of people in Jesus' name. Amen.